After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was, set, as he, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sepater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. A few years ago, I got really into watching old episodes of The Apprentice. And if you're familiar with The Apprentice, then you'll know that in most series, there's usually one candidate who never really has any ideas of their own but loves to sit in the boardroom taking pot shots and criticizing everyone else for their ideas. I believe the technical term is a negatude, someone that has a a negative attitude to everything they do. Maybe there are people like that in your life. Maybe you are that person. (laughs) Uh, My wife, Hannah, would definitely say that I can be like that, particularly if we're trying to choose what takeaway to order. But my guess is that most of the time, most of us find those kinds of people pretty tiresome. And nobody really wants to spend all of their life with a negitude. And maybe that's a little bit like how you feel about Christianity. Last Sunday, we were talking about the opposition to the gospel, an opposition that is often stirred up by vested interests and swept away by mob mentality and sent packing by due process. And the aim was to give you confidence that Christianity can be defended against such opposition. But maybe it also left you slightly rolling your eyes. Oh, here we go. Another sermon attacking our culture, doing down with HR. Can't we have something a bit positive for a change? Maybe that's how you feel about St. Helens. Oh, those preachers at the 6 p.m., they know what they're against bishops and the Church of England and secularism. 
But what are they actually for? What are they in favor of? It's a good question to ask of Christianity in general. Perhaps you're quite new to London and you've been looking around different churches and you'll have quickly realized that lots of different churches are about lots of different things. Some are all about the music. Others are all about tradition and ceremony. Others are all about their social action projects. Maybe it's left you wondering, what are we for? Or even better, what should we be for? What does the Bible say we should be for? What was Paul all about? What is authentic Christianity all about? What is Christianity for, in favor of? Those of you who are into politics will know that Rishi Sunak has his five key priorities for 2023. And Keir Starmer has his five national missions for the general election. But what's our manifesto? What are our key priorities? If, if last week is what we're up against, then what is Christianity for? Well, the next part of Acts is designed to show us. And we said last week that the whole of Acts 19 to 28 is about defending Christianity. Uh, over the next nine chapters, we will follow Paul from Ephesus to Jerusalem to Caesarea to Rome, and everywhere he goes, he will need to publicly defend his ministry. But before his trials begin in Acts 21, Luke uses Paul's journey to Jerusalem in Acts 20 to, sh to give us a sort of showcase of Paul's ministry. It's a bit like the, the personal statement you write to tell a university what you're all about before you get grilled at the interview stage. This is Paul's personal statement. And it comes in two parts. First, in Acts 20, 1 to 16, our passage this evening, we see Paul doing his ministry in practice, doing what he's all about. And then in Acts 17 to 38, we see Paul explaining his ministry in principle, explaining what he's all about. And Luke's aim is that before we get to Paul's defense, we would see what Paul was for. So that when we come to defend the gospel, we would know, well, what are we all about? And why is it so worth doing? And why is it so worth defending? This evening, we're just going to look at the first 16 verses of Acts 20, Paul doing his ministry in practice. And we're going to see that he was all about three things, the same three things that all authentic Christian ministry should be about. Word-empowered encouragement, mission-minded training, and life-giving preaching. Firstly then, word-empowered encouragement. Look down with me again. At verse 1 of our passage. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he'd gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. If you're studying RML Romans this year, then you might remember that it was around this time in the story of Acts that Paul wrote his letter to Rome. And it might surprise you that Luke doesn't mention any of the things that we know from Romans were going on in his life at this time. And there's nothing about Paul's desire to visit Spain. 
And there's nothing about the collection that he was gathering of money from the churches in Macedonia and Greece to donate to the church in Jerusalem. Instead, Luke seems to pass over these special circumstances and instead focuses on what was bread and butter for Paul, his day-to-day ministry, the things that he was all about. And twice in two verses, we see the same activity, encouragement. Verse one again, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he'd gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And now encouragement is a bit of an empty term for us today in, in our conservative evangelical world. It's become a bit of a buzzword that sort of means anything from there's been a revival in my office and everyone's become a Christian to I found my lost pair of socks and I'm feeling vaguely happy about it. But in the Bible, encouragement has a much stronger meaning. Now, the term literally means to call to one side, to come alongside someone. Now, you might remember the Triathlon World Series in 2016 when Johnny Brownlee was coming round the corner to the last 500 meters and then started to falter and to collapse. And his brother Alistair then came round and, and took him by the shoulder and literally carried him the last 500 meters of the race so that he could finish in second place. That's what encouragement in the Bible is all about. Coming alongside someone, strengthening them, helping them to get over the line. That is the essence of encouragement, strengthening disciples. And the character who models this most clearly in Acts is Barnabas, whose name literally means son of encouragement, Bar-Nabbas. I put Acts 11.23 on your handout when Barnabas visits the newly firmed church in Antioch. And it says, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all, literally encouraged them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Encouragement is all about seeing the grace of God, seeing what God has done in his grace in your university CU or your office Christian meeting or your RML small group. And then strengthening what God has done by coming alongside disciples and encouraging them to stand firm in the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? And it's what we see Paul doing again and again in our passage. Of course, because encouragement is about strengthening disciples, it means the way that it's achieved is through the word of God. That's the means of encouragement. Back in Acts 20, verse 2, we're told, when Paul had gone through those regions and given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. I don't know if this surprises you to hear a preacher at St. Helens say this, but I think the NIV has a slightly better translation of this verse. Um, It says, he traveled through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people. If I were to give you a, a very literal translation, it would say he traveled through those regions and encouraged them with much word. He encouraged them with much word. And of course, the word it refers to here is the word of the gospel, the word of God. One commentator puts it like this. 
Nothing encourages and strengthens the people of God like the word of God. When I was a student, I used to quite like listening to sermons by John Piper, so much so that I actually developed quite a good impression of him. I'm not going to try and do it now. But I do remember quite clearly this one sermon where he said, you never, 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 never outgrow your need for the gospel. Don't ever think of the gospel as that's the way you get saved and then you get strong by leaving it and doing something else. No, we are strengthened by God through the gospel every day till the day we drop. You never outgrow your need for the gospel. And so if we want to stand firm as disciples of the Lord Jesus, we need to be encouraged by much word. And we need to listen to that word, not just once or twice, but again and again and again. That's the method of encouragement, repeated investment. Those of you who've been here for the whole of our series in Acts might have noticed that both of the places Paul visits in these verses are places that he's already been before. First, he goes to Macedonia in verse 1, where he was in Acts 16, planting the church in Philippi. And then in verse 2, he goes to Greece, where he was in Acts 18, planting the church in Corinth. In fact, I've put a map on your handout, which shows that before Paul sets off to Jerusalem, he actually goes in this big circular route. So it's the black line, and he goes all the way up through Macedonia to Greece, and then comes back the same way, all the way to Jerusalem. It's a bit of a circular route, isn't it? Why, why does Paul choose to do such a circuitous journey? Well, the reason is encouragement. He revisits all of the places that he's already been so that he can be encouraging them with much word. And you see the same thing all over the place in Paul's ministry. In Acts 14, 22, which I've also put on the handout, after his first missionary journey, Paul didn't just go home after he'd planted all those churches. No, he went back through all the same places that he'd visited initially, strengthening and encouraging the churches, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. A few weeks ago, William put it like this. He said, Paul was as much a church builder as a word planter. And that's right. And that's what we should be about too. Strengthening disciples with much word as we invest in each other again and again and again. So let me ask you, are you being strengthened by much word? Are you committed to being here every Sunday? Are you stuck into a small group? Have you asked someone to read the Bible with you one-to-one? And if you have done all those things, then are there people in your RML group that you could encourage? Could you be like an Alistair Brownlee for someone in your group and help them get over the line? Are there truths that you've been learning in your Bible studies that you could encourage them with? Could you send them a text? Or offer to meet up for a coffee or start reading regularly the Bible with them. I still remember the people who did that for me when I was a student. People who kept praying for me, even when I was frustrating, even when I was flaky. 
who encouraged me to keep coming to Bible study, who chatted to me about my questions and pointed me to the Lord Jesus. I honestly don't think I'd be here without them. So who could you be that for in London? We are people of encouragement with much word because that's what Christianity is for. Strengthening the disciples with word-empowered encouragement. Of course, there might be some people that we want to set aside to do that full time. And that brings us to the second thing that Paul was all about. Mission-minded training. Look down with me at verse 3. There he spent three months, that is, in Greece. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. As Luke narrates Paul's travel itinerary, he includes this list of Paul's traveling companions. Sopater the Berean, of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. We don't get an explicit reason for their inclusion. That maybe they were involved in the, the collection for the churches in Jerusalem that we mentioned earlier. But Luke seems to pass over that detail. And so more likely, Luke wanted to draw attention to Paul's practice, not just of strengthening the disciples with encouragement, but of taking and selecting some from among their number to train with him in ministry. Notice how all of them are connected with one of the churches that Paul planted. So Peter, the Berean of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. In fact, together, these people represent the whole of Paul's missionary career. From Derby, one of the first churches that he planted way back in Acts 14, to Berea and Thessalonica, both planted during his second missionary journey. And finally, Asia, where he spent three years at the end of his third missionary journey. I've put a, a small table on the handout where you can see how many of them appear elsewhere in the New Testament as core members of Paul's missionary team. So Aristarchus pops up at the end of Colossians in prison with Paul in Rome. Antichicus is mentioned at the end of Ephesians and Colossians because he carried Paul's letters there and then went on to Crete to help Titus with ministry there. And of course, there's Timothy, Paul's right-hand man, trusted to oversee the work in Ephesus. So these people represent Paul's core team, put together over years of ministry, not just strengthening the churches with encouragement, but selecting and training people for that ministry themselves. That's what Paul was all about. And that's what we should be all about too. Wonderfully, that's something that previous generations at St. Helens have understood well. And thanks to their legacy, there are many, many people all over the world doing this ministry who've been trained here. I only arrived for the first time at St. Helens in 2017, but even since then, I've seen people trained and sent back to Japan, to New Zealand, to South Carolina, and to Belgium. 
And our our current crop of associates come from as many different places as Singapore, China, Lithuania, France, Kenya, Australia, and even Birmingham. And yet this is something that every generation needs to be persuaded of. So is this our priority in the 6 p.m. today? Perhaps you have an RML leader who teaches the Bible so clearly Have you encouraged them to think about going forward for more training in teaching the Bible? Perhaps to apply for the associate scheme for next year. Could you be that person? Have people had that conversation with you? Have you thought about starting to have those conversations in earnest with a staff member about whether you could come to do the scheme in the year ahead? As I was thinking about this passage, I was struck that Luke includes this point in his description of Paul's bread and butter ministry, his everyday ministry, the stuff that he was all about. And I think sometimes I get it into my head that that training is only for big churches like St. Helens or only for full-time trainers who've been set aside to run three-hour training sessions on Isaiah. But that's not Paul's method, is it? This is part of his normal ministry. And all he does is take people along with him for the ride. And that means something, training is something that we can all be involved in. Maybe there are people in your RML group that you could take along with you. Gifted members of your group who show some potential for teaching the Bible that you could ask to lead a study or two this term. Or people that are growing a real hunger for evangelism that you'd like to encourage, that you could take along to do some walk-up with you before the 6 p.m. one week. I think it's one of the reasons that summer camps have historically been so good at training leaders, because they're wonderful at giving young Christians small opportunities to lead, leading a meeting or a dorm discussion or giving a short talk, and doing it together with an older, more experienced leader so that they grow up and are trained in Christian ministry. And that's the kind of mindset that we want to have at the 6 p.m. Constantly thinking, how do I strengthen this disciple with much word? How do I get them to be trained for ministry? What could I ask them to do next that would help them to grow in this work? Because that's what biblical Christianity is all about. Word-empowered encouragement. Mission-minded training. And of course, the key to them both is the word of God. And so thirdly, we are all about life-giving preaching. Let me pick up the point in verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep, as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive 
and were not a little comforted. And now I have to admit that I'm not 100% sure what to do with these verses. I'm definitely relieved that you're all sitting nice and close to the floor. So even if someone does fall asleep, hopefully no one will die. Last Sunday after church, I went to the Guildhall Art Gallery and my German in-laws came with me and they called me over to look at these two paintings. And the one on the left was of a girl sitting in all her Sunday finery. And the one on the right was of the same girl asleep in her seat. And the title of the one on the left was My First Sermon. And the title of the one on the right was My Second Sermon. And that's the kind of honesty you can get from German in-laws. But other than making gags about boring sermons, it's hard to know what to do with these verses, isn't it? It's definitely a miracle. In verse 9, it says the boy was taken up dead. So when Paul says in verse, nine, in verse 10, his life is in him, there's only one explanation. God has wonderfully, miraculously restored this boy, Eutychus, to life from the dead. And yet still, it's hard to know, why do we need this here? Maybe someone could go away and do some thinking about that. Here's my best guess. You know those maps of London, how they sometimes show the whole of the city and then have a little inset square near the centre, so you can see what the centre of town looks like in more detail, sort of zoomed in on the roads right in the middle of town. I wonder if these verses work a bit like that. We've seen the broad pattern of Paul's ministry in verses 1 to 6. And now in verses 7 to 12, Luke zooms us in on this single night that Paul spent in Troas so that we can see what he actually used his time for. What did he actually do in all the places that he went in order to do this training, in order to do this encouragement? And what we see him doing here is preaching. Verse 7 On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech, literally, he prolonged the word, that is, he preached to them, until midnight. Or verse 11, and when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, that is, he carried on with his sermon until daybreak, and so departed. It's striking, isn't it? Paul only has one night with these people. He knows this is the last time he will ever see them. And what does he do? He preaches all night, from dawn, from dusk till dawn. And even when someone dies in the middle of his sermon... He doesn't let it distract him. He just raises the guy from the dead and then goes back upstairs and carries on with the talk. I mean, if you thought your RML group was committed, think again. It makes you question, why is Paul so determined to preach? What made preaching so important to him? I think we get a clue in verses 9 and 10. If you know your Bible really well, then the image of Paul spreading himself over a dead child might be reminding you of some other stories from the Bible. Elijah and the widow's son in 1 Kings 17. 
Elisha and the Shunammite woman's son in 2 Kings 4. Jesus and the widow of Nain in Luke 7. Peter and Tabitha in Acts 9. So what does this miracle tell us? It tells us that Paul belongs to the same line as of life-giving preachers of God's word as Elijah, as Elisha, as Jesus, as Peter. His words, the words of the gospel spoken by Paul as he preaches, have the same life-giving power as the words of Jesus, because they are the words of Jesus, the word of the gospel, the word of God. Doesn't that explain why Paul is so determined to preach? From dusk till dawn, even if someone dies in the middle of the sermon? Because preaching has the power to give eternal life to the spiritually dead. And from time to time, Christian friends of mine ask me, why are St. Helens so obsessed with the Bible? And you can kind of understand what they mean. They mean, you know, all Christians like the Bible, but, but why does St. Helens have to make such a big deal about it? And yet, can you see why that's actually a slightly odd question to ask? I mean, if you were walking down the street and you saw a paramedic doing CPR and they were shouting for a defibrillator, you wouldn't think, oh, paramedics, a bit obsessed with defibrillators, aren't they? <laughs> you wouldn't. It'd be a bit odd if you did think that. And yet that's what the gospel is. It gives life to the dead. It has the power to raise us from being dead in our transgressions to alive with Christ and seated in the heavenly places with him. And so, of course, that's what we should be all about. Not just on Sundays, but midweek. At lunchtime talks or Bible study groups or one-to-one or on our own, speaking the word of God to one another, being revived by God's word. Because that's what the gospel is. A life-giving remedy for a dying world. And that's what true Christianity is all about. Here's our manifesto then for biblical Christianity. Rishi Sunak has his five priorities. Halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt, cut waiting lists, stop the boats. Keir Starmer has his five national missions. Get building, switch on energy, help the NHS, take back our streaks, break down barriers. But what are our, what are our promises? What are we all about as Christians? What's our manifesto? What is Christianity for? Are we just like those people on The Apprentice, criticizing others because it's what we like to do? Here's what I think Paul would say. Biblical Christianity, authentic Christian ministry, is all about word-empowered encouragement, mission-minded training, life-giving preaching. So let's make sure that's what we're all about at the 6 p.m., Let's pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we praise you for your life-giving word. We ask that we might be strengthened by it as we encourage one another with much word. That you would raise up leaders who are trained in that ministry 
with mission-mindedness and that you would give us life through the preaching of the Bible that we might be revived from our spiritual deadness. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.